Hello and welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine podcast. I'm Laura Feetham and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Kerry Johansson. Kerry is an assistant professor at the University of Calgary and is the associate director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Clinic there. Kerry, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Laura. So you and a group of co-authors have recently written a position paper for the Lancet Respiratory Medicine about the place of antacid therapy to treat patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It seems fair to say that there's a lot of controversy in this area. First of all, um, please could you outline what is known about the links between idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, gastroesophageal reflux and antacid therapy? Sure. The group of co-authors, we all came together December 2015 uh, in Ariche, Sicily at a small conference of 48 uh, people who were invited to participate in this event. And this, the Ariche ILD working group uh, was the brainchild of Dr. Carlo Vanceri from the University of Catania in Sicily, as well as uh, Professor Athel Wells and um, Professor uh, Luca Ricchelli. So the format for this conference that took place in Ariche was really in a pro-con debate format. And one of the topics that came up in the debate was the role of antacid therapy in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this was taken in the context of the recent treatment recommendation that came from the international guideline in 2015 uh, that recommended antacid therapy for patients with IPF. So what we know about the relationship between gastroesophageal reflux and IPF is that GER, uh, gastroesophageal reflux, is very common in patients with IPF. And if you take all patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and you study them uh, using esophageal you know, pH and manometry studies, what has been found is that up to over 90% of patients will have abnormal gastroesophageal reflux. Some element of reflux of, of gastric contents into the esophagus is normal in all people, but once it gets to a certain height or a certain degree or a certain frequency, then it's considered abnormal. And so knowing that IPF is a process that evolves in an individual that is likely susceptible, whether it's uh, genetically or physiologically, and then they can have some element of injury uh, that, that triggers the process to develop IPF, the hypothesis has been generated that it's potentially microaspiration and um, the contents from the stomach refluxing up into the esophagus going down into the lungs that is triggering IPF in some of these patients. And so knowing that it's highly prevalent, people went on to do a number of different studies. And I would say the best evidence that we have to date comes from two large retrospective studies of clinical trial cohorts. So the first one looked at the placebo arms of patients from three randomized clinical trials. So these patients were on placebo in the trial and not on the study drug. And about 50% of them were on some form of antacid therapy and 50% were not. And the authors looked at change in lung function over time and found that the individual patients who were on antacid therapy, whether it was a proton pump inhibitor or a histamine 2 receptor antagonist, had slower uh, loss of lung function over time. Um, They also had no acute exacerbations compared to the patients that were not on this type of therapy. So this this study prompted the idea that it's potentially the antacid therapy itself that is slowing the rate of disease progression and possibly preventing acute exacerbations. More recently, from a different group of clinical trial placebo cohorts, 
the, a similar analysis was looked at, um, looking at outcomes including hospitalizations, survival, and again in those patients they looked at the placebo arms, so they were not on any therapy in these randomized controlled trials specific to the trial, but about 50% of them were on some form of antacid therapy at baseline enrollment and 50% were not, and there was no difference in the outcomes of the patients who were on an antacid therapy compared to those patients who were not on antacid therapy. So at the end of the day, there really is clinical equipoise as to whether or not antacid therapy in and of itself is an effective therapy for patients with IPF. So the recent international guideline statement on the treatment of IPF, which you just mentioned, uh, attempted to address the role of antiacid therapy in the management of IPF, with the non-conflicted voting members of the committee making a conditional recommendation for the use of antiacid therapy in the treatment of patients with IPF. Why do you think this has stirred up some controversy? It's a a really interesting question, Um, and it's partly the process itself by which clinical practice guidelines are established. And I would like to um, applaud the societies, so the ATS, the ERS, JRS, and ALAT, that came together to put this position paper on the treatment of, of IPF and really made an attempt with the participants from the committee to minimize bias. And that's obviously a really critical part of any clinical practice guideline when you're putting a statement out there that recommends therapy for all patients with this disease. The organizations and the participants really want to ensure that the recommendation is coming from an evidence base and is justified. And so what, what was done with this particular guideline, and this has been a transition since the previous guidelines, and this is an update from the 2011 uh, treatment guidelines for IPS, is that the um, committees were uh, designed to include a diversity of individuals, and everybody was able to participate in the the literature review and and some elements of the discussion around the topic, but only non-conflicted members were able to vote on the recommendation. And so essentially, of all of the committee members, there were eight participants that would be considered experts in the field of IPS, and all eight of them were conflicted, uh, having financial or non-financial relationships with um, with industry uh, or potential research base that was invested in this pro- this uh, type of a question. So they were unable to participate in the actual voting of the recommendation. And so the final recommendation for antacid therapy in this statement The question itself um, says, should patients with IPF be treated with antacid medication? And the the recommendation is yes, for it's a, a conditional recommendation for use of antacid therapy based on very low confidence in effect estimates. So of that 2015 guideline, the committee had reviewed a number of therapies that are no longer recommended, and that is based on evidence supporting that they were either harmful or there was no efficacy. And the three that came out with a conditional recommendation for use in IPS include antiacid therapy, nintenidib, and perfenidone. And there was a concern within the community that based on the, the level of evidence supporting antiacid therapy in IPS, that this type of recommendation was quite strong when you're putting it in the same category as two other IPF-specific therapies that have been demonstrated to be effective in reducing the rate of disease progression in randomized control trials that were very well conducted. And so the, the strength and the quality of the evidence for the antacid therapy was felt to be very low. But at the end of the day, end users of this document, so clinical practitioners who are you know, in a busy clinic and are trying to provide appropriate treatment recommendations for their patients, 
for the most part, they'll be looking through these guidelines and looking at the key messages boxes or the guideline recommendation itself and not be looking to do a, a self-assessment of all of the weight of the evidence. So if you're just going to take the document at its face value, it's recommending nintenidib, profenadone, and antiacid therapy with equal conditional recommendations. And uh, that was thought to be a big source of the problem. And what's really interesting in this document also is that, the, that there's an editorial note from the, um, from the editor of this guideline who actually went back and asked all of the committee members, particularly the, the conflicted voting members, had they been able to vote on each of the recommendations in this guideline, would they have voted differently? For all of the other um, recommendations, there would have been no change. However, many of the conflicted experts would have made no recommendation regarding antiacid therapy, and that was citing a lack of randomized trials and concern that this antiacid recommendation would be perceived as equivalent to the other conditional recommendations like I had outlined. And so ultimately, in clinical practice, what might happen, and we would expect to happen, is that all patients with IPF, regardless of the presence of gastroesophageal reflux and or symptoms, are going to be started on some form of antiacid therapy. The other uh, aspect of this is that antiacid therapy wasn't really well defined. Based on the evidence that's presented, we assume that this would mean proton pump inhibitors or uh, H2 receptor antagonists, but it doesn't elucidate whether or not that includes uh, conservative management. We know from the gastroenterology literature that intervention, conservative and lifestyle interventions like weight loss and elevating the head end of the bed are the most effective for managing GERD symptoms. There was no clear uh, definition of what antiacid therapy meant in this context. So clearly there's still an evidence gap here. Uh, what directions should researchers take now to try and address some of these issues? So as Confucius says, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. And I think this is an issue probably in every aspect of medicine, but I think moving forward for research purposes and to better characterize this, we need to within the field, um, use shared definitions when we're doing research. So whether or not it's GER, which is just gastroesophageal reflux, which can be measured versus abnormal GER, which means it's more than would be expected, versus using the term GERD, which means that downstream there is an adverse physiological effect, and that's usually thought of within the context of esophageal GERD. Uh, we need to move forward with unified definitions, and whether, whether we invent a new term or extrapolate microaspiration, I think that's going to be really helpful moving forward so that for future studies we're all studying and measuring the same thing. There are some trials ongoing right now. There's a highly anticipated trial of surgical fund application uh, in patients with IPF. Um, we're hoping to have those results perhaps even within the next year. And that would be a definitive therapy to prevent reflux in patients with IPF. So what that will answer hopefully, is whether or not uh, the prevention of reflux in a patient with IPF improves outcomes moving forward. Um, it won't address the question of whether or not asymptomatic reflux in all patients with IPF should be treated with antacid therapy, but it will give us more of an indication as to whether or not we think this is pathogenic in IPF patients. If they have ongoing acid reflux and potentially microaspiration, is that likely making their disease worse and giving an opportunity for effective intervention? Again, more studies will need to be done to look at patients that are at risk of developing IPF, so patients with a genetic predisposition, and follow them moving forward to determine whether or not any anti-acid therapies um, have been effective in preventing the progression to disease. 
and to ultimately answer the question if an antacid itself, if a proton pump inhibitor is effective at preventing disease progression uh, and improving outcomes in patients, randomized controlled trials of antacid therapy would really need to be conducted. Kerry, thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Laura. Thanks for inviting me.